convert made? Uh, letter D. That they can reach everyone in that place without a missionary being present. John, see if y'all can, go, y'all can find that, that dilly for me back there, will you please? All right, let me ask you this question now. What part of that definition is, is, um, is the most shocking to you or that tweaked your understanding of a missionary more than any? Talk to me for a little while. What is it? B. A missionary is someone who has sent across a boundary to where the gospel is not. Talk to me, Michael. Why is that revolutionary for you? That's right. But what is in North Carolina? The gospel is already there, right? Exactly. And I think that is. Most of us, I mean, we just come... I think people are are born and born again with a lot of false definitions and false theology. Uh, And that's one of the things that we're born with, that a mission trip is just getting on a bus or a boat or a plane or anywhere and just going somewhere. So that tells us that the only thing that we really have to help us define missions is that we're more than 20 or 30 miles away from the house, right? As long as you're going somewhere and doing something that's not on your immediate church field. You'll be amazed how prevalent that definition is in churches and in pulpits today. And I'm telling you that's insufficient because a missionary is someone who goes to where the gospel is not. Remember our missionary model is based off the the mission uh, uh, paradigm that the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. I think it's a pretty good model to follow. If we're going to define missions, we've got to bring Paul into this conversation, do we not? So Paul said, yeah, it's going somewhere to where the gospel is not. Remember Romans 15, Paul said, I wanted to come to you, Romans, many times, but for this reason I was prevented. What was the reason? Remember we talked about it last Sunday. There was a church there. You're right. So he focused on those areas where the gospel was not. So that is revolutionary. Write that down, as my daddy used to say, on the inside of your eyelids. Because that will help us shape our missiology and mission strategy as a local church. We're going somewhere to where the gospel is not. So, you know, thank God for for folks who do cross-cultural ministry trips. Do you see the difference between cross-cultural ministry now and cross-cultural missions? Cross-cultural ministry. uh, Let me ask you a couple of questions. Here's your test. Cross-cultural ministry or cross-cultural missions is your response. Okay? Here we go. Going to the Bahamas on a short-term mission trip to conduct backyard Bible clubs. Cross-cultural ministry. All right? Uh, Going to Honduras to have an evangelistic crusade in uh, Tegucigalpa. What is it? Cross-cultural ministry. Why? Because what I gave you in that scenario, there was enough information for you to assume that the gospel's there, right? All right? Uh, going to Burkina Faso to work with the, with the Daguri people. Why? 
That's right, because you never heard of it. And if you never heard of them, they never heard the gospel, right? Okay, so you're starting to see. Now, here's, what, here's one of the things that we do at our mission organization as we help to mobilize local churches and bring them along. We want to work with, because most traditional Baptist churches have what's known as a missions committee, am I right? So that missions committee is the one who determines if their church is going to be involved in X mission project, right? And I promise you when we start working with local churches, the only criteria they have for which they make the decisions that come to them is do we have enough money to do it? Because they have no way of discerning or evaluating whether or not a mission project that is placed before them as a church and a missions committee is cross-cultural missions. They are a what? A missions committee. Or is it cross-cultural ministry? And as a local church, what is the priority that we take with mission funds? Somebody tell me. It's what? It's top priority. You better rest it is top shelf. But is it, is it going to places where the gospel already is? Or is it like Michael said, a, a crossing a boundary to where the gospel is not? So when we have folk come here like Moose who came and he is working in uh, Ghana and he talks about people groups and church planting, what is he talking about? He's talking about missions. That's right. And as long as there is not... What is the threshold that we said, missiologically speaking, what's the threshold for, for whether or not a culture is reached or not? 2%. Again, not hard and fast, but yeah. church planning, There's a lot of church planning going on in areas that are still below that threshold. Okay? All right, so that is good. That's revolutionary. As far as our definition goes, a missionary is someone sent. He's sent by who? He's sent by church, but there's also a sense in which he's sent by God. But he's not just sent by one or the other. It's tandem, both. That's sending by God, a God call. Here's where we start with mission students. You've got to be able to postulate and define for me your call as a missionary, not only the subjective experience, but confirming that with the objective reality of God's Word. Okay? Because if you don't have a clear sense of call, are you going to survive on the mission field, Mr. and Ms. Wells? Why not? That's right. If God called me here, God's going to sustain me here, right? That's exactly right. Uh, Dane and Cheryl, it's a lot easier way to make a living, isn't there? Huh? I mean, there really is. All right, so here we go. Somebody who's sent... That's why we want to be a sending church. You see that? Folk are sent in somebody's authority. To whom did Jesus give the authority of the Great Commission? The local church. He did. All right, so here we go. Uh, to where the gospel is not, put them up there, Troy. See, in order to see a church planted, not just a convert made. When folk come back, use them short-term mission trips. What's the number one thing we hear them talking about? Conversions. How many folk were saved? That fits well into the model of going to Honduras and helping with, a, with an evangelistic crusade, does it not? It doesn't work very well when you go to Brazil and work with quilombolas who've never heard the gospel before. So we measure significance by churches that are planted. All right, letter D, Troy. 
that can reach everyone in that place without the missionary being present through the work of indigenous converts. Oh man. You see, this is one of the, a missionary's job. His or her job is to work his or herself out of a job. And we're, that, this is one of the reasons why the Quilombolas are now being moved from unreached to kind of underreach slash reached because they're starting to get it done. So our role as a mission agency with the Quilombola shifts from frontline missionary work to equipper, trainer, mentor of leaders who are going to get this done. If we pull out too quick, it can go back to being unreached within just a short time. When mission agencies pull out, when missionaries pull out too quick, it's just like our exit from Afghanistan. When the last C-130 left out of Afghanistan, what was the Taliban doing? Taking over the airport. And that's what will happen if we pull out too quick. Alright, so that's what a missionary is. Any, anything else in there revolutionary for you? Alright. Here we go, number next. Missions, missions, missions. Somebody give me the definition. What did we say it was last week? Because we got to get to new ground. The privilege and responsibility of the local church, or it's the activities of the local church, in fulfilling her responsibility and privilege to carry the gospel to those who currently have no access to it. Anything you want to add to that? Any nuances, any caveats? Say again. That is missional believer. So that is my very next one. That's a missional believer. Because what is our goal? Our goal at Grace Church is to be a sending church that is composed of missional believers. So here's what we're looking for as we make disciples. Our goal for every one of you is that you become a missional believer. Now a missional believer is someone, Mike just gave us, Michael just gave us the definition, someone who uses their resources and influence to get the gospel to those who have no access to it. That's a missional believer. It means they're aware, they're in the know. Now, how many of you do not have a copy of How Missional Am I? If you do not have it, we want to put it in your hands. Does everybody have a copy? Dr. Oh, the reason nobody's raising their hand, Dr. John gave everybody another one? Okay, if you did not take that last week, take it. I'll give you the score. We want you to be in the upper ranges of that score. The only way you can is if you're a missional believer. That means you're plugged into some missionaries somewhere who are feeding you with information. So this is the point where we want you to say, listen, I, I, I am personal, I've personalized the Great Commission. That means I, I am helping missionaries get this job done of global evangelization. So uh, a missional believer doesn't hide behind their local church and say, oh, I give to missions because our church gives X percent of all of our undesignated gifts to missions. No, that's, that's depersonalized. As a missionary, I want to know who you are so I can start pouring into your life things that God's doing through your involvement in mission work. Do you see the difference? So every one of us, 
There ought to be a missionary somewhere on this planet that knows every name in this building if we're going to be... Not not every name, but knows a name in this building. Everybody ought to be known in here by a missionary somewhere and they are pouring into your life through your involvement because you're a missional believer. Are you following me? So that's what we want. We want everybody in here to be plugged into a missionary. We want you to be a missional believer. Now my, my question is, you remember Charles Spurgeon said, every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. That definition that we had on the, on the board a little while ago, can every believer do that? I don't think so. I don't think so. But can every believer be a missional believer? You better believe they can. They can use their resources and their influence to push light out into areas of darkness where it is not today. And that's what, that's what we're after. That's a missional believer. A missional believer is someone who, who gives to, to great commission organizations and to great commission people. Uh, a, great, a, a, a missional believer is someone who takes short-term mission trips to... to Mission fields. Uh, oh, by the way, there's a lot of churches that have that sign on their, oh, over the door on the way out. Here's what it says. Anybody know what it says? You're now entering the mission field. True or false, according to our definition? It's false. You're exactly right. Bonifay is not a mission field. Bonifay is a ministry field. You're exactly right. Y'all going to do well on the midterm. Y'all are starting to get it. All right, here we go. Now let's get into some new ground. Three non-negotiable missionary principles. Everything that we do as a mission organization among an unreached people group is framed by these three principles. Okay? Now the first one, you're going to say, what in the world is that crazy word? Probably the only place it's ever used is in missions classes. But it's known as the principle of indigeneity. All right? Here's what the principle of indigeneity is. Do we have that definition back there, Dr. John? The principle of indigeneity? Here it is. The missionary's goal of planting churches composed of native believers led by native leaders and reflective of native culture. You see, when the whales are in Senegal, they don't want to plant a church that looks like a church in Florida because that wouldn't be an indigenous church. And here's what we know about churches that are not indigenous. It's the same thing that we know about trees that are not indigenous. In our backyard in Brazil, Heather and I have probably seven or eight different tropical fruit trees. Everything from banana to orange to caju to uh, limousinia, tons of stuff. And look, it's good. It's good. My banana trees reproduce so fast in that tropical climate till we have to keep cutting them down or they'll take over the whole backyard. But 
If I took one of those banana trees from my backyard in Brazil and planted it in Bonifay, Florida, what would happen to it? First winter came along, it'd be dead. So what happens to churches that are not indigenous? Can they reproduce? They do not because they're not indigenous. So the missionary's job is not to carry U.S. culture and plant churches that look like U.S. churches. Hey, it's sad but true. I can take you because Brazil is one of the oldest Southern Baptist fields for missionaries, uh, for Southern Baptist missionaries. I can take you to places where you can look at the church and you can tell who it was planted by simply by reading the marquee in front of it. Because here's what it'll say. It'll say, services, Bible study, 9.30 a.m., worship, 11 o'clock, discipleship training, 6 p.m., worship, 7 p.m., Wednesday night, prayer meeting. Are you following me? Where did they get that from? They got it from a U.S. missionary a hundred years ago. And they can't break out of that model. I can take you to places in Africa where even though nobody wears a suit and tie down there, the pastor's going to stand up and preach in a suit and tie. Am I right? Where'd they get that from? How do they know you're supposed to wear a suit and tie when you preach? They got it from a U.S. missionary somewhere. You see, those things are not indigenous. Do you see that? You see the way a guy in suit and tie in sub-Saharan Africa sticks out like a sore thumb? Huh? He does. In Brazil, they don't even have church on Sunday morning because Brazilian culture, Sunday is the... I mean, they work like dogs. The only day they have to do stuff around the house is Sunday. That's it. So their main worship service is not Sunday morning. It's not until Sunday night. That's Brazilian culture. So we don't take our culture down there. We want those people to express worship to God through their own culture. And we can do that. And here's what's so cool about it. I didn't realize how much of my ecclesiology was informed by U.S. Bible-built culture until I became a cross-cultural missionary. And I began to question everything. Why do we do... Is that biblical or is it cultural? And you'll be amazed how much of our ecclesiology, sometimes theology, is cultural, not biblical. So we want to shake down our missionaries. We want to pick them up by the heels and shake them until everything comes out of their pockets that's cultural. And only the biblical stays in there. And hey, here's what we do. You'll, you'll find when you start doing that that it's a process that you will keep doing until you die. I mean, there's a lot of... I evaluate a lot now in that, in that light. When something gets under my skin and irritates me, I have to ask myself, am I irritated this, about this because a biblical principle has been violated or am I irritated about this because something cultural has been violated? I ask myself that all the time. Um, for example, it gets under my skin when somebody who is young enough to be my son calls me by my first name. Thank you, Perry. 
I thought I was a dinosaur. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Perry. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because, see, part of my culture, my daddy said, son, you better put a handle on that name. You know? Because kids didn't talk to adults then the way kids talk to adults now. When an adult said something to you, you didn't say, uh-huh. Huh? And you, you know, it's, that's right. It's yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. So I've got a friend that pastors a church. It's not in the South. And I interact with them a good bit. We've mobilized them. We've equipped them. We have them plugged in today. But when I go up there, kids in the children's department will say, Hey, Richie. I know. You see, because you're, 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 you're a good Southern girl. But I have to ask myself all the time, is that biblical or is that cultural? A lot of it is, isn't it? I got in the elevator one day going to the, in Jacksonville, going to the sixth floor Baptist Hospital. And as I was in there, the door was about to close. And uh, there was a lady trying to get on. So I stuck my hand in the door like that. And it closed on my hand. But it immediately opened back up. And she said, uh... Oh, thank you so much for doing that. I'm in a hurry. I'm glad you did it. I said, yes, ma'am, no problem. She went off on me. How dare you call me mad? I said, wait a minute. You went from being thankful to being mad at me? And th this is what I said. I said, you're not from around here, are you? She said, no, I'm not. I said, where are you from? She said, Chicago. I said, I could have guessed. I said, let me tell you about Jacksonville, Florida. Yes, ma'am, is it an insult? It's respect. And it's that way in the United States, isn't it? I mean, we're, we have cultural differences even in the U.S. And wherever you are, you need to know something about that culture. That's called contextualization. Or you're going to offend people. So the principle of indigeneity, that's what we want to do. We want to produce native churches, plant native churches composed of native leaders. A, a, a church that we plant, if I go down there and pastor it for the first six years of its life, is it going to be native? No, because I'm not native. So we want to get a native leader involved. That's an indigenous church. That's known as the principle of indigeneity. Everything we do, we want it to fit in and we want it to be native. Are you with me? Alright, number next is the principle of... What order did I put them in, Dr. John? Give me number next. Oh, the principle of reproducibility. Here we go. The missionary can introduce nothing that cannot be reproduced within the host culture by native believers. If you introduce something that they can't get, that they can't have, you will stop the church planning process because they will think they can't do it if they can't have it. So, as you know, uh, for years I taught a two-year pastor training program in the interior of Brazil equipping native pastors. Uh, we would certify them through the Baptist College of Florida so that they would be legit. 
And man, my life would have been so much easier if I would have carried my laptop along with me and a PowerPoint presenter and been able to walk through whatever class I was in via PowerPoint. But if I had done that, what would I have been guilty of doing? I would have violated the principle of reproducibility because there's no way, no how, they're going to have a laptop with a PowerPoint projector. They're not. And without me knowingly introducing that, they would have automatically thought, I can't do what Pastor Richie does until I have what Pastor Richie has, and they would have, it would have stopped. So guess what I do in Brazil? I'll go, when we get to a place, I'll go to a, a school supply store and buy me a whiteboard. Hey, you know why I have a whiteboard here? I'll buy a whiteboard and a pack of pens, and I, that's what I use. And now, uh, Heather and I made a game out of it for a long time while we were on the field, because when I would be in a certain region, I mean, because we trained over 175 native pastors, so when I'd be in a certain area, we would get, I mean, we'd get tons of invitations. Hey, if you're here, come to our church tonight and preach. And when we would go to a church, our game would be, let's see who can find the whiteboard first. Because guess what they'd have? Every one of those pastors that had been in my training, there'd be a whiteboard they use in their church when they're teaching. Now, did I tell them, you've got to have a whiteboard and you got... No, what is it? it's monkey see, monkey do. Everything you do, they're soaking it in. So there's a whiteboard. You're going to find a whiteboard. If there's a pastor in the interior of Brazil that's been trained by Pastor Richie, one thing you can bet he's going to have in his church is a whiteboard. Not because I told them they had to have it, just because they saw me use it, and by golly, that's what they do. So you can see what would happen now if I would have used my laptop. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If a missionary violates this principle, it's just a matter of when it comes back to bite you and the missionary purpose and the hiney. Because it is going to do it. It's going to do it. And when it takes a bite, it's going to set the church planning process back. So nothing can be introduced. Hey, uh, this is why, for instance, this is why we don't do any construction. By the way, when I, go to, when I go to churches, as I'll be going this fall to several and leading mission mobilization seminars and things of that nature, when I start get there, you can bet all, uh, not all, there's going to be a good contention of people come to me and tell me how mission-minded their church is. And I'm going to have a conversation with them about that. Mission-minded. The next thing they're going to tell me is how many mission trips they've taken and how many churches they've built abroad. Because that's basically what... When you start with ground zero with the church, that's where they're going to start, right there. You just mark it down. But here's the deal. In, a, in an environment where your goal is the rapid multiplication of churches, if you build the first church a building... Guess what you got to do to the second church? And guess what you got to do to the third church? And guess what you've got to do with the 300th church? And before long, you price yourself out of the Great Commission game. 
Because you can't keep that up. It's not sustainable. So if it's not sustainable, don't introduce it to start with. See where I'm going? Y'all following me? All right. Hey, Dane will tell you, we wish we didn't have to have buildings at all. You're starting to see some of Mission Field come to Bonifay with Grace Church. You may not know it, but a lot of what we do in Grace Church is evaluated missiologically. One of the reasons why, why, why you'll never hear Pastor Richie stand in the pulpit and say, all right, guys, we're starting a Together We Build program. And we're going to pass out envelopes, and y'all going to make commitments to the building program because we're going to build us a, 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 a $2 million facility right up here on the corner. The reason you're never going to hear that is because as missionaries, we wish we didn't even have to have a building. So we're going to get by with an old bingo hall or skating rink or whatever it was. Because, I mean, that building thing on the mission field can become an issue. And you'd be amazed how many of our churches start under a mango tree. Our lead Keelumbola church started under a mango tree. I didn't want them to have a building. And the pastor came to me one day and said, Pastor Richard, we just got to have a building. And I said, why do we have to have a building? Because when we're out in the open... Worshiping in a Quilombo community on Sunday morning, we're making noise. We've got a guitar playing it acoustically. We're making noise. We're preaching. There will be men, Dana, tell you, who will come by and lean up on a fence post about 60 yards away, and they don't want you to know it, but they're listening. They won't come close, but they stay in earshot. They're listening. So when we're out publicly, man, it's evangelism on spotlight. But he said, look, it's mango season, and mangoes are starting to fall. And their mangoes are like this. He said, if we don't have a place to meet, he said, we're going to send believers from our worship service straight to heaven when a mango hits them on the head. <laughs> so I said, all right. So we had to concede and let them build a building. So anyway, uh, the principle of reproducibility, number next, three non-negotiable missionary principles that if you violate them as a missionary... They're going to take a bite out of you. Number three. Hey. <laughs> oh, that's right. Hey, our Quilombolas will get it done when they need one. So I've only taken one construction team down my entire time, 15, 16 years in Brazil. But when we go down, leave your skill saws, your speed squares, and all that, because you don't know a thing about Brazilian construction. Because we're going to build a mud hut. But that's right, and that's Brazilian, that's quilombola. And a lot of folk look at that and think, oh, how poor. No, that's their culture. A mud hut for them is just much part of their culture is our three-bedroom, two-bath ranch-style house in Bonifay. It just is. All right, uh, what are we at now? The principle of non-dependence. All of these principles are interrelated and co-related. The principle of non-dependence is the missionary should do nothing that causes native believers to look to outside support and resources for, for, for fulfilling the Great Commission. 
If they're dependent upon me and not God, it's bad. We want them to get them dependent upon God. Here's our message. The same God that provides for us will provide for you because you are His people. You are His church. You are His ambassadors in this culture. And if we have to keep them on artificial life support, what's going to happen when we pull the life support? That's exactly right. So, the principle of non-dependence. This is why... And man, there's a lot of guys out there that are, are flying this flag and making a lot of money with it. But here's what they say. They say that, that we need to begin to financially pay the salary of native missionaries and pastors. Here's their reasoning. Because we can pay ten native pastors for what it cost us to send one U.S. missionary. And if all you are is a money guru, that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? But that is violation of this principle. Those men become dependent upon you and your support rather upon God. See, here's the deal. If we'll start them out right, God will provide their needs. And that's reproducible. But it's not reproducible if every pastor and every missionary has to be dependent upon U.S. resources before they can do their ministry. Do you see that? The Great Commission, by the way, doesn't just say, send money. It says, go. So no, we want to go and we want to teach those native pastors how to, how to fund their ministry if they have to. Raise you some goats. Plant you some corn. Work as a construction worker for four days a week building mud huts. Do whatever you got to do. But if it's not indigenous, if it's not resource from within, then it's eventually going to come to an end and fall. So these three principles, if we, will, if we will, and we do, listen to me. As a mission organization, we live and die by these three principles. Because you violate one of these, you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting gospel propagation. And here's what we want. We want to make sure that we're on solid missiological ground because going to come a day when the call whales can't go back to Brazil. Going to come a day when the whales can't go back to Senegal. Going to come a day when the other whales can't go back to Peru. Going to come that day whether we are declared persona non grata and can't get visas, or whether something happens to us and we can't travel anymore, I want to die knowing that the influence I uh, and the years I spent on the mission field are going to outlive me. See what I'm saying? So when COVID hits, everything goes down from here to here. But you know God's good because in our missionary context it worked for the good of the gospel. We were dying because we couldn't minister like we had been accustomed. But here's what our Quilombola leaders understood when we couldn't physically be there. Hey, this really is dependent upon us. Just like they said, if it's going to get done, it has to be us. So we've got Quilombola churches that planted three or four or five churches while we weren't even there. <laughs> that helps get to the point to where 
we are today. We're there on that boundary of moving from unreached to underreached to reached because now they're doing it. So God took something bad, used it for something good, and now look where we are. These three principles we live and die by. You ready for your test? Here's your test. Let me show you something. If you want to be a missionary, you've got to come up here and get one of these snakes out of this bucket. <laughs> I've got cotton mouth. I've got copperheads. I've got rattlesnakes. Let me show you something. And I want you to work it out missiologically. From 2009 until 2012, Heather and I were attempting to penetrate Quilombola culture and get in Quilombola villages with the gospel. From 2009 until 2012, we successfully entered three Quilombola villages. Now look here, there's only 850 in our state. You don't have to be a mathematician to realize that if you only got in one a year, how many years is it going to take you to reach them? You're right, more than I got. So one of our leaders said, Pastor Richie, this ain't working. Because Quilombola villages are very closed. You can't just walk up and say, hey, we're missionaries from the United States. We have a wonderful message we'd like to share with you. Can we come in? Well, no, you can't. Before you get in, you've got to be able to show that your presence is of some benefit to this community, and the gospel, as far as they're concerned, is not a benefit. They know nothing about it. So the villages are pretty much controlled by a chief or president or influential leader. We've got to win that leader before he even lets us in. So one of our leaders said, we've got to have something that's going to give us credibility so we can get in villages quicker than we are getting into. How about water filtration? Because if you'll notice, every village we go into, they're drinking from a, a well that's dug with a shovel, and the water you can pick it up, you can't see through it. So kids walking around with distended bellies, health just is not what it ought to be. So how about water filtration, all right? What do you propose that will stay within the limits of what we need to do? Well, we propose a, 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 a filter. I say, all right, I brought this one home. This is not the filter that we use. The one that we use, the bottom or the foot, they call it, is about the size of a five-gallon bucket, and the top, the kaisha, or the box is about the size of a five-gallon bucket. I couldn't get one of them on the airplane with me, so I had my guy make me one I could get on the airplane. So this water filter is made of Brazilian mud. It is spun on a Brazilian potter's wheel, and it's made right there in the jungle. So we make one of these... And it's gravity fed, and here's the filter. The, the one that's normal size has two of these filters. This is just a, a simple little filter. What's it made of, Dane? Gosh, I can't remember, but yeah. So all it is is gravity flow. Water goes through here. There's a hole here. It comes out. We pour water in the top. And in about four hours, it'll filter about 16 liters of water. Comes out in the bottom. So, just put your spout on there. This filter right here, believe it or not, is available in every little mud hut corner store, 
basically in the interior of Brazil, right? You can get them. And they only cost like, oh, like 50 cents, U.S. 50 cents. So here's what we decided to do. We're going to take these water filters and we are going to use them as our door opener to get in Quilombola villages and we're going to put one filter in every mud hut house. Notice it's made of mud. Their house is made of mud. So it's culturally appropriate. So when we measure a Quilombola village, we don't measure by population, we measure by household because we want to put a filter in each house. When we have a short-term team come down, when we're opening a new Quilombola village, a new Quilombola village, this is what U.S. team members do. They tote one of these, assemble it, put it in every mud hut that gives us face time, credibility with every family in that Quilombola village. So, looking at this filter, you are a missionary on the field. This has been proposed. You're a board member of Link Up Missions. Can we do this and it not violate the three non-negotiable principles that missionaries live and die by? If so, why? If not, why? So talk to me. So y'all say we can do this. Why can we do that? So what principle is it in keeping with? It's, it's made right there. It's not imported. It's reproducible. It's indigenous. It doesn't. We make it very clear. We're going to give you this. Then we're done. If you want to continue this, you've got to sell enough whatever in order to buy these for 50 cents at the corner store. So we're out of it. We're not depending. Depend, we're not pumping any more into it. This is it. It's yours once we put it on your table in your mud hut kitchen. And I promise you, after Heather and I, we've got pictures. In 2013, Heather and I opened the village and we took pictures with some folk as we were, you know, putting them in their houses. Went back two weeks later, took pictures with the same folk. You can look at the photos and see the difference in their, in their complexion because it's having that much of a health effect. When they see that, they will come up with 50 cents to buy this. Um, by the way, the Brazilian government decided, you know, they always throw money every now and then at Quilombolas just to, you know, like all democratic due to the poor people, throw them just enough to keep them in poverty. You know what I mean? So they took plastic ones to some Quilombola villages. And when we go into a Quilombola village, the, gov the government has done that and brought plastic ones. You know where we find those plastic ones? No? Usually on the front porch and they got plants growing in them. <laughs> they think, hmm, that's not a water filter, but it'd make a good bucket for my plant. <laughs> they reject them. Why? Because the government knows nothing about their culture and about contextualization. So, and every time I have a team come down, by the way, I'll have one or two guys on every team that help us carry water filters that want to improve on this. Now, Lord would say, Pastor Richie, you know, if we make this out of uh, stainless steel and we put a three-stage water filtration processor in it, what are they doing? 
they are making it violate every one of these principles. Every one of them. It's not indigenous anymore. It's not reproducible anymore. It causes dependence. So, you see, there's a way to get things done, and we must get them done in a way that they don't violate these principles. So, y'all say we can do this, huh? And this is a live scenario. I sat in front of our board of directors, and I said, y'all put your thinking caps on, because we don't want to start something that's going to bite us. Can we do this? Is this legit? And we decided, yeah, we can do this. So we did it. From 2009 until 2012, prior to Project Misao Agua Viva, we got in three Quilombola communities. 2013, we did our first water filter project in a village. So from 2013 until 2019, the next six or seven years, we got in just shy of 100 villages because of that right there. When we walk up to a Quilombola village now and say, hey, we are not with the government. We are just here wanting to help purify your water. And when we, the chief says, heck yeah, we'll let y'all do that. After we have been in every house putting one of these up, we're like rock stars. So we say this, hey, we've got a U.S. team with us this week. You've probably never seen an American, and they haven't. They've always heard about you, but wasn't sure if you existed or not. So they like to listen to your English and laugh at you. They like to observe you and watch all your strange mannerisms and characteristics. And I say, tonight at 7 o'clock, right up under this mango tree, we're just going to kind of have a cultural exchange. They're going to want to know something about you. You're going to want to know something about them. And then at the end of that, we're going to tell some stories uh, that are very important to us. We would like y'all to come. Guess what we'll have? We'll have a crowd under the mango tree. And we tell Genesis chapter 1. Here's what will happen. Because they're an oral society, they'll memorize that story. The next day, they'll go back to where they work doing what, it, what they do in the jungle, they'll tell that story to folks they're working with. Night number two, guess what we have? Even more folk. And we just continue to tell Bible stories. If we'd have went in there and said, hey, we want to come and tell y'all some stories, can we? What do you think would have happened? We may have, if they would have even let us in, we may have had one, one or two people. Jay Strack said, how many of y'all remember Jay Strack? Jay Strack's still alive, ain't he? Listen, he was the guru. I mean, in student ministry, uh, Jay Strack was the man. He was the preacher. And I remember Jay Strack said one time that God has sovereignly ordained pizza to reach young folk. <laughs> you know, because that's what they do back in the day. They have a big pizza party, invite all the kids. And the kids come for pizza, and while they were there, they'd preach gospel. Well, we have seen that God has sovereignly ordained these little mud water filters to reach Quilombolas. And he did. By the way, I read an article the other day in a scientific journal that said the water filter, the mud water filter made in Brazil is one of the best on the planet. This figures right into how we, we can use this to tell stories about God created everything. Do you know that this filter itself acts as a filter? 
Because once you fill this thing up with water, it changes colors because it's porous. Water gets in it. And as water moves through this mud and back out of that mud, you know what it does? Who would have ever thought that mud can purify water? But that's the way our God designed it. He designed your drinking water so that rain can fall today on a nasty Boniface street, go into a manhole, run through sewage and waste and all kind of stuff, run out on a field, filter through grass, mud, sand, shell, and get back down into the water table, and guess what it is? Pure. That's the way God designed it. And that's what this filter does, because it's just made out of mud. So the filter itself, I, I, it was a scientific article talking about this filter right here is better than ones made out of plastic, stainless steel, you name it, because it's just God's way of filtering. He uses that. So there you go. There's the three, 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 three non-negotiable principles. Write them on the inside of your belt if you have to. What else do I have up there? Because we're about done, aren't we, John? Oh, Oh gosh, my two models of evangelism. I'm done. Tell you what I'm going to do. Next Sunday when Jordanandes is here, is it all right? If we, okay, never mind, I won't. Thank you, Mr. Cliff. When Jordanandes is here, we're going to do a little interaction with Jordanandes, and then I'll finish up with that question and with two models of evangelism. Saturation evangelism and dragnet evangelism. All right, here's what, I have, here's what I have found out. You know, Jesus was a missionary. Did you know that? According to this definition we put on the board, Jesus was the first missionary. Do you know why? He was sent by God the Father. He came to where the gospel was not. And here's what revolutionized my hermeneutic. Don't you love that? I began, and, and here's the thing, I had three theological degrees before I became a missionary. And after I became a missionary, it's like I knew nothing. Nothing. And I started learning again. And I started the reading, reading the New Testament from a missionary perspective. And here's what I find about the teachings of Jesus. Most of His teachings are given from a missionary perspective because He was a missionary. He came to a place to where the gospel was not. And a lot of times we try to interpret his teachings from a reach society. So you see the, see the conflict? So when you put yourself in an unreached context mindset and then you go to the New Testament and understand and use that as the interpretive lens for the teaching of Jesus, man, then it begins to blossom. So... We'll look at these two models next week. Hey, thank y'all. Uh, you can tell I really love talking about missions. Uh, this thing should have been finished in one, in one Sunday school lesson, and we're going we're to drag it out for three. What is the greatest challenge? Let me just give you one big word and let the whales explain it to you. Overcoming ethnocentricity. And we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> that cleared it right up, didn't it, Dr. John? <laughs> All right. Here we go. Let's pray, and we're going to come back and do a little worship. God, thank you.
for sending Jesus as a missionary. Help us be missionaries and missional believers.